Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 237. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. (laughs) Exactly. Still get bloody excited, man. <laughs> anyway, I'll tell you what's coming day show. We have the announcement of a narrator's workshop, which I'll talk a little bit about. Yes. Then we have short fiction, Worlds Like a Hundred Thousand Pearls by Elliot Debadour. Then we have a fact article, which is Paul Finch's Theatre of the Mind. Then main fiction, we have none other than Joe Haldeman with a story entitled Tricentennial. Then, rounding off, we have first chapters, Seeds of a New Birth by Brad Swift. Can't get better than that. So, let's just talk about Narrator's Workshop. This is, I've organised another one there, one of these webinar events, a bit like the Writer's Workshop. And, to be quite honest... Out of all of them, this always one, or this one did last year, and this is where I've I've getting more people inquiring about, is the narrator's workshop. So it is on the 10th of June, 4 p.m. British summer time, which is round about 8, 9, 10, 11, somewhere like that in the US, and God knows what time over there in Australia and, and that kind of part of the hemisphere. Tell you who's guest speakers. We have the amazing Kate Baker, top narrator at Clark's World. We've got the amazing Peter Seaton Clark, Mike Boris, who's done some amazing works on the sofa, and guess who else? No other than Nathan Lowell, who, with his like solar clipper books, has just like rocketed around because of his narrations. You know, those books have just like taken off. There's a little bit of kind of some of the things, because the idea this time with this narrator's workshop is to get each of the guests just to have a, like a chat about their setup, you know, how they do it. Because last, last year when we did this narrator's workshop, you know, I set out the specific, you know, how to do this, how to do that. And then the guests, you know, filled in the blanks and talked about that. But this time, it's just purely, I wanted the guests, you know, the speakers, what they did, how they got their sound sounding great, because... Every one of them, do you know what I mean? If you, if I was looking, you know, if now Kate's got, like, say, got on like, to Clark's World there to get a story. We used to get stories off Kate. Do you know what I mean? To get so, any one of them recordings by them people, it's just, you know what I mean? You're just lost in a world of kind of narration. And the best thing about a narrator, which is quite a spooky thing or quite a strange thing, is 
You don't want to know about them. You don't want to hear them. You know, you just want to be lost in the story. And that's what these four do. But I'll give you, we're going to talk about, or they're going to talk about, you know, GarageBand, the software there from Apple, Audacity, settings, editing, what to look for and how to kind of remove all these like specific, you know, nicks and kind of fluffs and things like that. Getting the right mic. Where where can you record? You know, it's not just good sitting down. Because actually, if you listen I record, I'm not in the perfect place here, in the living room, and there's a lot of wood and a lot of hard surfaces, and it's it, a little bit echoey. I always think that, you know, but, and I've never actually stooped to the, you know, I know Matt Sambor Smith sticks, sometimes sticks a blanket over his head when he <laughs> records, just to dampen down that echo sound. Techniques for making your narration stand out, and most importantly, where the work is. You know, if you've got a microphone... And you're at home or you've got time, you know, to do these narrations. There is places out there that will pay. That's, I mean, they wouldn't have me because I keep saying, I'm like cats killing each other when, when you hear my voice. But anyways, that's the, the workshop, 10th of June. I would love to see you there, please, honestly. Ticket price for this event is £25. And it's probably going to last around about two Two hours. I mean, the last of one, I think it, the, the workshop actually lasted about three and a half hours. And it's all online as well. So, you can't, like I say, you just sit there and what you see is my computer screen and you hear and see actually a presentation, but you hear the guest speakers. And right at the very end, there is a question and answers, which is actually always popular throughout all the workshops I do. You know, it's your chance to get your questions over and just ask the guests, you know, little things that have been niggling you on narrations. And one of the main things is, come and narrate for Starship so far. You know, we, we have now, you know, there's some secret projects going on there, but Tales to Terrify, you know, desperate for the narrators over there and Starship so far. There'll be a link on to this post and I'll get Josh to put like a little widget on the front of the website as well. If you've signed up to the email, you'll get, you'll get all the, hopefully you'll, you'll get to hear about it. I'll be blathering on about it as well in the up and coming weeks. And I'll try and get Kate, Peter and Mike and Nathan to do a little audio sample, you know, a little chat. And I'll put that on the show as well. So the 10th of June, please, you know, if you like narrations, if you want to kind of take narration skills a little bit further, that would be fantastic. Come over and I'll see you at that workshop. It's all online as well. So... So... First up is a little bit of short fiction, Worlds Like a Hundred Thousand Pearls by Elliot Debordeaux. This is one of those little bit of flash stories that we, we played last week as well. It's from that collection. So I hope you enjoy it. It is narrated by Cher Eves, an attorney in rural Kentucky. Cher says she writes opinions for a judge. She acts in a local theatre and serves on her community as a hospice caregiver and soup kitchen server. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present Worlds Like a Hundred Thousand Pearls by Aliette de Baudard. Exponential, the transcendental number that is the base of Neperian or natural logarithms, approximately equal to 2.71828. The number also has applications in probability theory. Symbol E, first referenced in work by John Napier, in 1618 A.D. Shall I tell you a story? Not the Buddhist fables in the sutras about kings and their sons, the cryptic wisdom you stopped believing when war stole your husband from you, 
leaving you with only a hologram on the ancestral shrine, and your son Huang, too young to understand, who kept asking you why Daddy wasn't coming home. Not a Taoist story either, full of heroes with peachwood swords and demon fights, where the dead can rise and walk again. The miracles that never happen. For you have stood at too many funerals, watching the coffins covered with a yellow shroud, and no one ever woke up, not even to become the shambling monstrosities that used to frighten Huang so much. No, it is a far, far older tale, older even than Gautama Buddha himself. You might have heard some of it already, in one form or another. The Lotus and the other sutras, for instance, speak of worlds upon worlds, stacked atop each other like Huang's toys, each awaiting the honored one's coming, that he might teach them the way to Nirvana. Before you ask, I know nothing of Nirvana or the Honored One. I have never seen them on my travels. But the worlds... The worlds are there, scattered like a broken necklace, a hundred thousand pearls ready to be picked up, and the way between them requiring only a thought to be opened. A thought. You don't say it, but I hear it all the same. You think it's not a much better story than the ones that I mocked. You sit in your deserted home, your hands smelling of dirt, thinking that you should wash them, that you should check the eight diagrams mirror above the door of your house, make sure the angry ghost won't find his way home. Though you cannot imagine Huang ever angry or vengeful, merely lost and bereft, weeping for the descendants he'll never have. You listen to me as you listen to the elders who told you not to mourn, who told you the old shouldn't break their hearts over the young, that a child's death is a tragedy, but not so great as losing a parent. Let me tell you about the worlds. I've walked a hundred thousand of them, under red suns, in deserts strewn with glass, by lakes shining under starlight. I have seen a city so large the sun never set on its gilded pagodas, a world of habitats in the heavens where the people released their dead onto metal kites that slid down toward the scorched earth, a forest of crystal on a vast sea where the wind sang songs like fishermen's laments. They're the worlds of paths not taken, of choices not made, of outcomes that never came to pass. Everything that happened around you, every direction taken by the myriad air cars in Hanoi's old quarter, every brush of a butterfly's wing held in Hong's cupped hands, every moment, every gesture, every held or released breath, they all gave rise to universes, the new rising from the debris of the old. Your eyes narrow. You watch me. You see me for the first time, standing by your side, with my hand outstretched, holding a piece of crystal that trembles with the weight of our breaths, scattering faint notes in the silence of the room. You see my face, which isn't Viet, or Chinese, or Westerner, which is like nothing you have seen before, and for the first time you realize that this... All of this might be for real. It is.
your breath catches in your throat, and the shard of crystal in my hand tightens in answer. You'd ask why, but you know better. There are no reasons in the universe, because if there were any, you wouldn't be here with the white headband of mourning still coiled on the table. So instead you ask about the worlds. You ask about the other ones, the ones where the air car swerved right instead of left, the ones where Huang didn't cross the street running, excited about showing you the cicada in his hand. There is an answer, but it is neither easy nor simple. Bear with me. My order is old, old enough for its origins to have been lost. We have opened the gates between worlds for as long as we can remember. On a held breath, on an empty mind, on a single thought spun into nothingness. We take nothing. We own nothing. We decide nothing, not even the destination on which a gate opens. We travel, witnessing the wonders and the horrors, the myriad dreams and fears of the living, the joys and the sorrows, the births and the funerals, the fabric that binds people everywhere, whatever their shape, language, or thoughts. So yes, you might see Huang again, or your husband. I can't foresee where your path might take you. I can, however, give you one warning. We cannot hold on to anything. It is a necessary condition, as in the Buddhist tales. It's only detachment that will unlock the world, and you can only leave a world for another if you have nothing to lose. You might perhaps see them again, but they would be as strangers to you. You would feel nothing, perhaps not even the slight flutter that comes when you walk by an old acquaintance in the street. You know all about pain and having nothing to lose. You think you can pay the price, if only for the slight chance that it offers of seeing Huang again. But I know about pain, too, and about renouncement, and I can tell you that it is a heavy price to pay. I can tell you, too, that in time the rawness of grief would become dull, like a knife's blade eroded by the sea, that you would walk by Lake Huangqian and think of the time Huang scraped his knee on the path to the temple, and that your heart would contract a little, with caring and with love, and the remembrance of happy times, that you would find comfort in your elders' words, and in the small chatter of your siblings and cousins at family reunions, and perhaps, in time, find someone else to love as much as you loved your husband and your son. In time, you would dismiss me as a sick mind's fancy. Shall I tell you a story? Like all good stories, it ends with a moral, a question, and a warning. Come with us, and you'll have the whole of space and time spread before you, more wonders and terrors than you can even imagine, to fill the emptiness in your heart, but only if you can accept that you'll never be able to grasp and hold any of it, that you'll never own anything, never master anything, only if you accept that you will never love anyone ever again. Come, tell me your answer.
There you go. Look out for more of these little stories coming in, you know, scattered throughout the, the times. Put a link onto Elliot's site. Elliot, thank you so much. It was Elliot that got in touch with us and sent over these stories, which is fantastic. Next up is Paul Finch. Paul, Theatre of the Mind. For the fourth Theatre of the Mind, I'll be looking at three programmes, Superman, The Fantastic Four and The Blue Beetle. So let's start with Superman. I must start out by saying I've never been a big Superman fan. He's, well, just too super. And I was definitely in the Marvel camp rather than DC's. I, I was surprised by how much of Superman's world started out in the radio shows. From the, frankly, preposterous opening... Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman! I mean, have you ever seen anyone point up to the sky, look surprised and cry, It's a bird! What, in the sky? A bird? Well, how unusual. And it was on the radio that he first teamed up with Batman, Perry White, Jimmy Olsen. Even Kryptonite was an invention of the radio adventures. The serial ran for 11 years, from 1940 to 1951. In the early episodes, Superman seems to spend most of the episodes just flying around looking for people. In my opinion, the absolute best episodes are from 1945 to 1946. Later episodes were ruined for me by that horrible 40s organ playing, and the storylines were pretty weak. So I recommend you start with the Atom Man story, which is in two parts. Part one, The Atom Man, there's 20 episodes, and part two, Atom Man in Metropolis, further 19. Seven and a half hours in total. Although around a quarter of the audio is taken up with heavy promotion for Kellogg's breakfast cereal, Pep. As I mentioned earlier, Batman and Robin team up with Superman for the first time in this show. Notably in the Is There Another Superman story? starting episode 1,214. <laughs> Ran for a long time. And they are featured quite heavily. At one point, Batman and Robin interrogate an informer for information. And I don't understand how he survives in the criminal underground, as this stool pigeon goes by the nickname of Stooley. The Metropolis Cooks must be... B- cooks? Crooks, even. Must be very dim. And now on to the Fantastic Four. Attention, all true believers. Marvel Comics is on the air. From the annals of the world's greatest comic magazine come the adventures of the Fantastic Four. This 1975 series was short-lived, and there are only 13 episodes. They are dramatizations of the original comics, starting with The Fantastic Four Meets the Mole Man. The series is narrated by Stan Lee, and the Human Torch is played by a pre-Saturday Night Live Bill Murray. The series is a faithful recreation of the comics, with dialogue and narration taken straight from the actual comics. The series not only featured Doctor Doom, who appeared in three episodes, but other Marvel characters like Ant-Man, Prince Namor, Nick Fury and the Hulk. With all the billions of stars in the universe, there must be other inhabited planets, other civilizations. That is the premise of this week's epic. On a planet in the fifth quadrant of the Andromeda galaxy, 
there is a civilization called the Skrulls. All Skrulls have the ability to change the makeup of their bodies. The Fantastic Four have previously encountered and defeated a group of Skrulls who are trying to invade and then control Earth. Now, the alien foe has developed a Super Skrull. I am the Super Skrull. I have all the powers of the Fantastic Four combined. <laughs> and more. It was the brainchild of Richard Clothen and Peter B. Lewis. The series was originally envisioned as a Silver Surfer series by Clothen. Eventually he left and Lewis continued the series development with the Fantastic Four as its stars. At archive.org they are split over two pages with the first ten episodes on one page and the remaining three on another so make sure you get them all. And now finally just a few words about The Blue Beetle. A few because I think this series is pretty dreadful. In fact it's this that makes it worth a listen. down upon the underworld to smash gangland comes a friend of the unfortunate, enemy of criminals. The mysterious, all-powerful character was a problem to the police. A crusader for law. In reality, Dan Garrett, a rookie patrolman, loved by everyone but suspected by none of being the Blue Beetle. As the Blue Beetle, he hides behind a strange mask and a suit of impenetrable blue chain armor, flexible as silk but stronger than steel. I had not heard of this superhero before, and have never come across the original comics. The Blue Beetle is not strictly a superhero, as he has no powers. Dan Garrett is a rookie policeman and transforms himself into the Blue Beetle by wearing bulletproof blue chainmail. The show aired from May to September in 1940, 24 episodes in total. Hey, look. What? A shabbily dressed man there. He just came out of that side entrance and gave a cigarette to that kid standing there. So what? Looks like the kid gave him some money for it. He's a dope peddler. He's selling dope cigarettes, marijuana. Marijuana? Boy, here's where I make a pinch. Hey, you there. I want to talk to you. Come on, get me, Trapper. Oh, yeah? You got to travel fast to get away from me, brother. Go get him, Danny. I'll signal Clancy on the next beat. He'll head him off at the intersection. Look, Danny's diving for him. He's got him. Boy, that was a flying tackle. <laughs> sure what? Hey, look. That car there. There's a machine gun. Look out, Danny! Frank Lovejoy was the Blue Beetle for the first 13 episodes, the rest being uncredited. Yes, it was that bad. To install fear into the criminals, he used a Beetle signal flashlight. But this was not his only weapon, however. He carried a revolver and a blue holster on his multi-pouch belt. Also like Batman, the Blue Beetle had a Beetlemobile car and a Beetlebird aeroplane. In at least one adventure, he carries something called a magic ray machine, a sort of super scientific cutting device. Yes, well, that's enough about that. So that's it for number four. Links to all three series can be found on my blog at madasaboxof.blogspot.com madasaboxof, all one word. You can also find me at spiritplantsradio.com whereas DJ Frogs, I have two shows, In the Window and Brain Song. 
Now, next time I'll be looking at... The Planet Man! If you have been, thanks for... But wait, look up in the sky. It's a bird. No, it's a... No, no, it is a bird. Pigeon, I think. Well, who would have thought I would have ever seen such a thing? I really love Paul's little kind of world there that he's got in the going in the theatre of the mind. So, Paul, honestly, keep them reviews coming in. I love them. Paul sent over, thank you, Paul. Paul sent over some links. So, if you want to go on the front of the website as well, along with the narrator's workshop link, <laughs> there is Paul's theatre of mind links as well. Paul, thank you so much. So, we come on to the main fiction, which is Tricentennial by Joe Haldeman. I'll give you a little heads up about this story, how important it was. In 1977, it won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story. Same year, it was the Locus Poll Award Best Short Story came first place. And it was a, it was a Nebula Award Short Story nomination. It came out in Analog Science Fiction Science Fact in July 1976. Then it has been in a host. It's one of the most kind of popular stories I've seen because I go on the Internet Speculative Fiction database, which is just a cracking site. And I always like to have a look what it's what stories have been in. It's just been picked up for so many anthologies. It was in Infinite Dreams, The Best of Analog, Nebula Winners 12, Endless Frontiers. I'm not going to read it because there's just so many of them. Hugo Winners Volume 4, Beyond the Stars, Road to Science Fiction. And if you don't know by now, Joe Haldeman wrote the fantastic Forever War. And you haven't got the copy of that in your house. Do you know what I mean? Again, year one, slapping man. That is one of the definitive science fiction stories. And that and Flowers for Algernon, there's, there's those two books, and I've said this right down the years, they're, always up, they're my two favourite, favourite stories. Can it split them up? You know, both take first place, but like I say, Joe Hellman's Forever was fantastic. But he's also got out recent books, Starbound, Marsbound. Another great one is Joe Hellman's The Accidental Time Machine. Just amazing. There's a link on there to Joe's site. Joe, thank you so much for agreeing to do that, letting us play this story. It is narrated by Peter Caval, who is a writer, voice actor and musician. His short fiction has been published in Hither and Thither, he says, with upcoming publications in Night to Dawn and Sideshow Fables. He's also an active as a playwright as well, and his scripts have been produced across North America, including a short work in Fort Point Theatre Channel's Carney Knowledge. He says he lives in Toronto with his soon-to-be wife and ferocious cat. And actually, this is an old bio, so people might be married and everything's been done. But again, listen to Pete's narrator. You know, this is another kind of just hint for the, you know, the, oh, yes, I, yes, I'm plugging the workshop, man. Let us, let us do that. But like you say, Pete is a stunning narrator. Do you know what I mean? Just take some advice and just listen how Pete narrates his story as well. Fantastic. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Tricentennial by Joe Haldeman Read by Peter Cavell December 1975 Scientists pointed out that the sun could be part of a double star system. For its companion to have gone undetected, of course, it would have to be small and dim and thousands of astronomical units distant. They would find it eventually. It would turn out to be them, and they would come in handy. January 20th, 2075 The office was opulent even by the extravagant standards of 21st century Washington. 
Senator Connors had a passion for antiques. One wall was lined with leather-bound books. A large brass telescope symbolized his role as liaison to the Science Guild. An intricately woven Navajo rug from his home state covered most of the parquet floor. A grandfather clock, paintings, old maps. The computer terminal was discreetly hidden in the top drawer of his heavy teak desk. On the desk, a blotter, a precisely centered fountain pen set, and a century-old, sound-only, black bell telephone. It chimed. His secretary said that Dr. Leventhal was waiting to see him. Keep answering me for thirty seconds, the senator said. Then hang it and send him right in. He cradled the phone and went to a wall mirror, straightened his tie and cape, then with a fingernail evened out the bottom line of his lip pomade, ran a hand through long, thinning white hair, and returned to stand by the desk, one hand on the phone. The heavy door whispered open. A short, thin man bowed slightly. Sire. The senator crossed to him with both hands out. Oh, blow that, Charlie. Give ten. The man took both his hands, only for an instant. When was I ever sire to you, you fool? Since last week, Leventhal said. Guild members have been calling you worse names than sire. The senator bobbed his head twice. True, and true. And I sympathize. Will of the people, though. Sure. Leventhal pronounced it as one word. Will of the people. Connors went to the bookcase and opened the chased panel. Drink? Yeah, Bo. Charlie sighed and lowered himself into a deep sofa. Hit me. Sherry or something. The senator brought their drinks and sat down beside Charlie. You should have listened to me. Should have got the ad guild to write your proposal. We have good writers. Begging to differ, less than two percent of the electorate bothered to vote, most of them for the administration advocate. Now, you take the engineering guild, you take the engineers, and... They use the ad guild, Connor shrugged. They got their budget. It's easy to sell bridges and power plants and shuttles, hard to sell pure science. The more reason for you to... Yeah, sure, ask for double and give half to the ad boys. Maybe next year. That's not what I came to talk about. That radio stuff? Right. Did you read the report? Connors looked into his glass. Charlie, you know I don't have time to. Somebody read it, though. Oh, nighty-o. Good astronomy boy on my staff. He gave me a boil down. Mighty interesting, that. There's an intelligent civilization eleven light years away. That's mighty interesting? Sure. Real breakthrough. Uncomfortable silence. Uh, what are you going to do about it? Two things. First, we're trying to figure out what they're saying. That's hard. Second, we want to send a message back. That's easy, and that's where you come in. The senator nodded and looked somewhat wary. Let me explain. We've sent messages to this star, 61 Cygni, before. It's a double star, actually, with a dark companion. Like us. Sort of. Anyhow, they never answered. They aren't listening, evidently. They aren't sending. But we got... What we're picking up is about what you'd pick up 11 light years from Earth. A confused jumble of broadcasts, 11 years old. Very faint, but obviously not generated by any natural source. Then we're already sending a message back, the same kind they're sending us. Well, that's right, but... So what does all this have to do with me? Bo, we don't want to whisper at them. We want to shout. Get their attention. Leventhal sipped his wine and leaned back. For that, we need one hell of a lot of power. Uh, nighty-o, Charlie. Power's money. How much are you talking about? The whole show. I want to shut down Death Valley for twelve hours. The senator's mouth made a silent O. Oh. 
Charlie, you've been working too hard. Another blackout? On purpose? There won't be any blackout. Death Valley has emergency storage for 14 hours. At half capacity? He drained his glass and walked back to the bar, shaking his head. First you say you want power. Then you say you want to turn off the power. He came back with a burlap-covered bottle. You aren't making sense, boy. Not turn it off, really. Turn it around. Is that a riddle? No, look, you know the power doesn't really come from the Death Valley grid. It's just a station and accumulator. Power comes from the orbital. I know all that, Charlie. I've got a science certificate. Sure. So what we've got is a big microwave laser in orbit that shoots down a tight beam of power. Enough to keep North America running. Enough. That's what I mean. You can't just... So we turn it around and shoot it at a power grid on the moon. Relay the power around to the big radio dish at Farside. Turn it into radio waves and point it at 61 Cygni. Give them a blast that'll fry their fillings. Doesn't sound neighborly. It wouldn't actually be that powerful, but it would be a hell of a lot more powerful than any natural 21-centimeter source. I don't know, boy. He rubbed his eyes and grimaced. I could maybe do it on the sly, only tell a few people what's on, but that'd only work for a few minutes. What do you need 12 hours for, anyway? Well, the thing won't aim itself at the moon automatically, the way it does at Death Valley. Figure as much as an hour to get the thing turned around and aimed. Then, we don't just want to send a blast of radio waves at them. We've got a five-hour program that first builds up a mutual language, then tells them about us, and finally asks them some questions. We want to send it twice. Connors refilled both glasses. How old were you in 47, Charlie? I was born in 45. You don't remember the blackout. 10,000 people died, and you want me to suggest... Come on, Bo, it's not the same thing. We know the accumulators work now. Besides, the ones who died, most of them had faulty fail-safes on their cars. If we warn them that the power is going to drop, they'll check their fail-safes or damn well stay out of the air. And the media? They'd have to take turns broadcasting. Are you going to tell the people what they can watch? Fuzz the media. They'll be getting the biggest story since the crucifixion. Maybe. Connors took a cigarette and pushed the box toward Charlie. You don't remember what happened to the senators from California in 47, do you? Nothing good, I suppose. No, indeed. They were impeached. Lucky they weren't lynched. Even though the real trouble was way up in orbit. Like you say, people pay a grid tax to California. They think the power comes from California. If something fuzzes up, they get pissed at California. I'm the lib senator from California. Charlie, ask me for the moon. Maybe I can do something. Don't ask me to fuzz around with Death Valley. All right, all right. It's not like I was asking you to wire it for me, Bo. Just get it on the ballot. We'll do everything we can to educate. Won't work. You barely got the Skilla probe voted in, and that was no skin off anybody, not with L5 picking up the tab. Just get it on the ballot. We'll see. I've got a quota, you know that? And the tricentennial coming up. Hell, everybody wants on the ballot. Please, Bo, this is bigger than that. This is bigger than anything. Get it on the ballot. Maybe as a writer. No promises. 1992. From Facts and Picks, the 12th of March. Antique space probe zapped by new stars. 1. Pioneer 10 sent first Jupiter picks earthward in 1973. See picks up left, up right. 2. Left solar system 1987. First man-made thing to leave solar system. 3. Yesterday, reports NSA, Pioneer 10 begins AM to pick up heavy radiation. Gets more and more to max about 3 p.m., then goes back down. 
Radiation has to come from outside solar system. 4. NSA and Hawaii scientists say Pioneer 10 went through disk of synchrotron radiation that comes from two stars we didn't know about before. A. These stars are small black dwarfs. B. They're going round each other once every 40 seconds and take 350,000 years to go around the sun. C. One of the stars is made of antimatter. This is stuff that blows up if it touches real matter. What the Hawaii scientists saw was a dim circle of invisible infrared light that blinks on and off every 20 seconds. This light comes from where the atmospheres of the two stars touch. See pick down left. D. The stars have a big magnetic field. Radiation comes from stuff spinning off the stars and trying to get through the field. E. The stars are about 5,000 times as far away from the sun as we are. They sit at the wrong angle compared to the rest of the solar system. See pick down left. 5. NSA says we aren't in any danger from the stars. They're too far away. And besides, nothing in the solar system ever goes through the radiation. 6. The woman who discovered the stars wants to call them Scylla and Charybdis. 7. Scientists say they don't know where the hell those two stars came from. Everything else in the solar system makes sense. February 2075. When the docking phase started, Charlie thought, that was when it was easy to tell the scientists from the baggage. The scientists were the ones who looked nervous. Superficially, it seemed very tranquil. Nothing like the bone-hurting, skin-stretching acceleration when the shuttle lifted off. The glittering, transparent cylinder of L-5 simply grew larger, slowly, then wheeled around to point at them. The problem was that a space colony big enough to hold 4,000 people has more inertia than God. If the shuttle hit the mating dimple too fast, it would fold up like an accordion. A spaceship is made to take stress in the other direction. Charlie hadn't paid first class but they led him up into the observation dome anyhow, professional courtesy. There were only two other people there, standing on the Velcro rug, strapped to one bar and hanging on another. They were a young man and woman, probably new colonists. The man was talking excitedly. The woman stared straight ahead, not listening. Her knuckles were white on the bar, and her teeth were clenched. Charlie wanted to say something in sympathy, but it's hard to talk while you're holding your breath. The last few meters are the worst. You can't see over the curve of the ship's hull, and the steering jets make a constant stutter of little bumps. Left, right, forward, back. If the shuttle folded, would the dome shatter, or just pop off? It was all controlled by computers, of course. The pilot just sat up there in a mist of weightless sweat. Then the low moan, almost subsonic shuddering, as the shuttle's smooth hull complained against the friction pads. Charlie waited for the ringing spang that would mean they were a little too fast. Alloy plates under the friction pads, crumbling to absorb the energy of their forward motion, last-ditch stand. If that didn't stop them, they would hit a two-meter wall of solid steel, which would. It had happened once, but not this time. Please remain seated until pressure is equalized, a recorded voice said. It's been a pleasure having you aboard. Charlie crawled down the pole, back to the passenger area. He walked, rip, 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 back to his seat and obediently waited for his ears to pop. Then the side door opened, and he went with the other passengers through the tube that led to the elevator. They stood on the ceiling. Someone had laboriously scratched a graffito on the metal wall. Stuck on this lift for hours, perforce, this lift that cost a million bucks. There's no such thing as centrifugal force. L5 sucks. 
Thirty more weightless seconds as they slid to the ground. There were a couple of dozen people waiting on the loading platform. Charlie stepped into the smell of orange blossoms and newly mown grass. He was home. Charlie, hey, over here! Young man standing by a tandem bicycle. Charlie squeezed both his hands and then jumped onto the back seat. Drink. Did you get? Drink. Then talk. They glided down the smooth macadam road toward town. The bar was just a rain canopy over some tables and chairs, overlooking the lake in the center of town. No bartender. You went to the service table and punched in your credit number, then chose wine or fruit juice, with or without vacuum-distilled raw alcohol. They talked about shuttle nerves a while. Then, what do you get from Connors? Words, not much. I'll give a full report at the meeting tonight. Looks like we won't even get on the ballot, though. Now, isn't that what we said was going to happen? We should have gone with Francois Patain's idea. Too risky. Patain's idea had been to tell Death Valley they had to shut down the laser for repairs. Not tell the groundhogs about the signal at all, just answer it. If they found out, they'd sue us down to our teeth. The man shook his head. I'll never understand groundhogs. Not your job. Charlie was an earth-born, earth-trained psychologist. Nobody born here ever could. Maybe so. He stood up. Thanks for the drink. I've got to get back to work. You know to call Dr. Bemis before the meeting? Yeah, there was a message at the Cape. She has a surprise for you. Doesn't she always? You clowns never do anything around here until I leave. All Abigail Bemis would say over the phone was that Charlie should come to her place for dinner. She'd prep him for the meeting. That was good, Ab. Can't afford real food on Earth. She laughed and stacked the plates in the cleaner, then drew two cups of coffee. She laughed again when she sat down. Stocky, white-haired woman with bright eyes and a sea of wrinkles. You're in a jolly mood tonight. Yep, it's expectation. Johnny said you had a surprise. Oh boy, he doesn't know half. So, you didn't get anywhere with the senator? No, even less than I expected. What's the secret? Connors is a nice-hearted boy. He's done a lot for us. Come on, Ab, what is it? He's right. Shut off the Groundhog's TV for twenty minutes and they'd have another revolution on their hands. Ab, we're going to send the message. Sure, I figured we would, using Farside at whatever wattage we've got. If we're lucky, nope, not enough power. Charlie stirred a half spoon of sugar into his coffee. You plan to defy Connors? Fuzz Connors, we're not going to use radio at all. Visible light? Infra? We're going to hand carry it. In Daedalus. Charlie's coffee cup was halfway to his mouth. He spilled a great deal. Here, have a napkin. June 2040. From A Short History of the Old Order. Freeman Press, 2040. And if you think that was a waste, consider Project Daedalus. That was the first big space thing after L5. Now, L5 worked out all right, because it was practical. But Daedalus, named from a Greek god who could fly, that was a clear-cut case of throwing money down the rat hole. The scientists in 2016 talked the bourgeoisie into paying for a trip to another star. It was going to take over a hundred years, but the scientists were going to have babies along the way, and train them to be scientists, whether they wanted to or not. They were going to use all the old H-bombs for fuel. As if we might not need the fuel someday right here on Earth. What if L5 decided they didn't like us and shut off the power beam? 
Daedalus was supposed to be a spaceship about a kilometer long. Most of it was manufactured in space from moon stuff, but a lot of it, the most expensive part, you bet, had to be boosted from Earth. They almost got it built, but then came the breakup and the People's Revolution. No way in hell the people were going to let them have those H-bombs, not sitting right over our heads like that. So we left the H-bombs in Helsinki, and the space freaks went back to doing whatever they're supposed to do. Every year they petitioned to get those H-bombs, but every year the will of the people says no. That spaceship is still up there. A sky-trillion-dollar boondoggle. A monument to bourgeoisie folly. It's worse than the pyramids. February 2075 So the Skilla probe is just a ruse to get the fuel? Oh no, not really. She slid a blue-covered folder to him. We're still going to Skilla. Scoop up a few megatons of degenerate antimatter and a similar amount of degenerate matter from Charybdis. We don't plan a generation ship, Charlie. The hydrogen fuel will get us out there. Once there, it'll power the magnetic bottles to hold the real fuel. Total annihilation of matter, Charlie said. That's right. MC squared to the ninth decimal place. We aren't talking about centuries to get to 61 Cygni. Nine years, there and back. The groundhogs aren't going to like it. All the bad feeling about the original Daedalus? Fuzz the groundhogs. We'll do everything we said we'd do with their precious H-bombs. Go out to Scylla, get some antimatter, and bring it back. Just taking a long way back. You don't want to just tell them what we're going to do? No skin off? She shook her head and laughed again, this time a little bitterly. You didn't read the editorial in People Post this morning, did you? I was too busy. So am I, boy. Too busy for that, Drick. One of my staff brought it in, though. It's about Daedalus? No, it concerns 61 Cygni. How the crazy scientists want to let those boogers know there's life on Earth. They'll come make people burgers out of us. Something like that. Over 3,000 people sat on the hillside, a natural amphitheater fashioned of moon dirt and earth grass. There was an incredible din, everyone talking at once. Dr. Bemis had just told them about the 61 Cygni expedition. On about the tenth, quiet please, Dr. Bemis was able to continue. So, you can see why we didn't simply broadcast this meeting. Earth would pick it up. Likewise, there are no groundhog media on L5 right now. They were rotated back to Earth, and the shuttle with their replacements needed repairs at the Cape. The other two shuttles are here. So I'm asking all of you, and all of your brethren who had to stay at their jobs, to keep secret the biggest thing since Isabella hawked her jewels. Until we lift. Now Dr. Leventhal, who's chief of our social sciences section, wants to talk to you about selecting the crew. Charlie hated public speaking. In this setting, he felt like a Christian on the way to being cat food. He smoothed out his damp notes on the podium. Uh, basic problem. A thousand people asked him to speak up. He adjusted the microphone. The basic problem is, we have space for about a thousand people. Probably more than one out of four want to go. Local murmur of assent. And we don't want to be despotic about choosing. But I've set up certain guidelines, and Dr. Bemis agrees with them. Nobody should plan on going if he or she needs sophisticated medical care. Same toke, few very old people should plan on going. Almost inaudibly, Abigail said, 64 isn't very old, Charlie. I'm going. She hadn't said anything earlier. He continued, looking at Bemis. Second, we must leave behind those people who are absolutely necessary for the maintenance of L5, including the power station. 
She smiled at him. We don't want to split up mating pairs, not for, well, nine years, but neither will we take children. He waited for the commotion to die down. On this mission, children are baggage. You'll have to find foster parents for them. Maybe they'll go on the next trip. Because we can't afford baggage. We don't know what's waiting for us at 61 Signai. A thousand people sounds like a lot, but it isn't. Not when you consider that we need a cross-section of all human knowledge, all human abilities. It may turn out that a person who can sing madrigals will be more important than a plasma physicist. No way of knowing ahead of time. The 4,000 people did manage to keep it secret, not so much out of strength of character as from a deep-seated paranoia about Earth and Earthlings. And Senator Connor's tricentennial actually came to their aid. Although there was one world ruled by the will of the people, some regions had more clout than others, and nationalism was by no means dead. This was one factor. Another factor was the way the groundhogs felt about the thermonuclear bombs stockpiled in Helsinki. All antiques, mostly a century or more old. The scientists said they were perfectly safe, but you know how that goes. The bombs still technically belonged to the countries that had surrendered them. Nine out of ten split between North America and Russia. The tenth remaining was divided among 42 other countries. They all got together every few years to argue about what to do with the damn things. Everybody wanted to get rid of them in some useful way, but nobody wanted to put up the capital. Charlie Leventhal's proposal was simple. L5 would provide bankroll, materials, and personnel. On a barren rock in the Norwegian Sea, they would take apart the old bombs, one at a time, and turn them into uniform fuel capsules for the Daedalus craft. The Scylla Charybdis probe would be timed to honor both the major spacefaring countries. Renamed the John F. Kennedy, it would leave Earth orbit on America's tricentennial. The craft would accelerate halfway to the double star system at 1G, then flip around and slow at the same rate. It would use a magnetic scoop to gather antimatter from Scylla. On May Day, 2077, it would again be renamed, being the Leonid Brezhnev for the return trip. For safety's sake, the antimatter would be delivered to a lunar research station near Farside. L5 scientists claimed harnessing the energy from total annihilation of matter would make a heaven on Earth. Most people doubted that, but looked forward to the fireworks. January 2076 The hell with that! Charlie was livid. I, I just won't do it. Won't! You're the only one! That's not true, Ab. You know it. Charlie paced from wall to wall of her office cubicle. There are dozens of people who can run L5. Better than I can. Not better, Charlie. He stopped in front of her desk, leaned over. Come on, Ab, there's only one logical person to stay behind and run things. Not only has she proven herself in the position, but she's too old to... That's the kind of drick I don't have to listen to. Now, Ab, no, you listen to me. I was an infant when we started building Daedalus, worked on it as a girl and a young woman. I could take you out there in a shuttle and show you the rivets that I put in, myself, a half-century ago. I earned my ticket, Charlie. Her voice softened. Age is a factor, yes. This is only the first trip of many, and when it comes back, I will be too old. You'll just be in your prime, and with over twenty years of experience as coordinator, I don't doubt they'll make you captain of the next ship. I don't want to be captain. I don't want to be coordinator. I just want to go. You and three thousand other people. 
And of the thousand that don't want to go or can't, there isn't one person who could serve as coordinator? I could name you, at least. That's not the point. There's no one on L5 who has anywhere near the influence, the connections you have on Earth. No one who understands groundhogs as well. That's racism, Ab. Groundhogs are just like you and me. Some of them. I don't see you going Earthside every chance you can get. What, you like the view up here? You like living in a can? He didn't have a ready answer for that. Ab continued. Whoever's coordinator is going to have to do some tall explaining, trying to keep things smooth between L5 and Earth. That's been your life's work, Charlie. And you're also known and respected here. You're the only logical choice. I'm not arguing with your logic. I know. Neither of them had to mention the document, signed by Charlie, among others, that gave Dr. Bemis final authority in selecting the crew for Daedalus slash Kennedy slash Brezhnev. Try not to hate me too much, Charlie. I have to do what's best for my people. All of my people. Charlie glared at her for a long moment and left. 2076. From Facts and Picks, June 4th. Space Farm leaves for stars next month. 1. The John F. Kennedy that goes up to Scylla Charybdis next month is like a little L5 with bombs up its tail. See Picks up left, up right. A. The trip's 20 months. They could either take a few people and fill the thing up with food, air, and water, or take a lot of people inside a closed ecology, like L5. B. They could have gotten by with only a couple hundred people to run the farms and stuff, but almost all the space freaks wanted to go. They're used to living that way, anyhow, and they never get to go anyplace. C. When they get back, the farms will be used as starter for L4, like L5 but smaller at first, and on the other side of the moon. Pick down left. 2. For other tricentennial facts and picks, see back cover. July 2076. Charlie was just finishing up a week on Earth the day that John F. Kennedy was launched. Tired of being interviewed, he slipped away from the media lounge at the Cape Shuttle port. His white clearance card got him out onto the landing strip, alone. The midnight shuttle was being fueled at the far end of the strip, gleaming pink-white in the last light from the setting sun. Its image twisted and danced in the shimmering heat that radiated from the tarmac. The smell of the soft tar was indelibly associated in his mind with leave-taking, relief. He walked to the middle of the strip and checked his watch. Five minutes. He lit a cigarette and threw it away. He rechecked his mental calculations. The flight would start low in the southwest. He blocked out the sun with a raised hand. What would a hundred and fifty bombs per second look like? For the media, they were called fuel capsules. The people who had carefully assembled them and gently lifted them to orbit and installed them in the tanks, they called them bombs. Ten times the brightness of a full moon, they had said. On L5, you weren't supposed to look toward it without a dark filter. No warm-up. It suddenly appeared, an impossibly brilliant rainbow speck just over the horizon. It gleamed for several minutes, then dimmed slightly with a haze, and slipped away. Most of the United States wouldn't see it until it came around again, some two hours later, turning night into day, competing with local pyrotechnic displays. Then, every couple of hours after that, Charlie would see it once more, then get on the shuttle, and finally stop having to call it by the name of a dead politician. September 2076 
There was a quiet celebration on L5 when Daedalus reached the midpoint of its journey, flipped, and started decelerating. The progress report from its crew characterized the journey as uneventful. At that time, they were going nearly two-tenths the speed of light. The laser beam that carried communications was redshifted from blue light down to orange. The message that turnaround had been successful took two weeks to travel from Daedalus to L5. They announced a slight course change. They had analyzed the polarization of light from Scylla Charybdis as their phase angle increased and were pretty sure the system was surrounded by flat rings of debris, like Saturn. They would come in low to avoid collision. January 2077 Daedalus had been sending back recognizable pictures of the Scylla Charybdis system for three weeks. They finally had one that was dramatic enough for groundhog consumption. Charlie set the hollow cube on his desk and pushed it around with his finger, marveling. This is incredible. How did they do it? It's a montage, of course. Johnny had been one of the youngest adults left behind. Heart murmur, trick knees, a surfeit of astrophysicists. The two stars are a strobe snapshot in infrared. Sort of. Some ten or twenty thousand exposures taken as the ship orbited around the system, then sorted out and enhanced. He pointed, but it wasn't much help, since Charlie was looking at the cube from a different angle. The lamina of fire where the atmospheres touch, that was taken in ultraviolet. Shows more fine structure that way. The rings were easy. Fairly long exposures in visible light. Gives the star background, too. A light tap on the door, and his assistant stuck his head in. Have a second, doctor? Sure. Somebody from a Russian Mayday committee is on the phone. She wants to know whether they've changed the name of the ship to Brezhnev yet. Yeah. Tell her we decided on Leon Trotsky instead, though. He nodded seriously. Okay. He started to close the door. Wait. Charlie rubbed his eyes. Tell her, uh, the ship doesn't have a commemorative name while it's in orbit there. They'll rechristen it just before the start of the return trip. Is that true? Johnny asked. I don't know. Who cares? In another couple of months, they won't want it named after anybody. He and Ab had worked out a plan, admittedly rather shaky, to protect L5 from the Groundhog's wrath. Nobody on the satellite knew ahead of time that the ship was headed for 61 Cygni. It was a decision of the crew, arrived at on the way to Scylla Charybdis. They modified the drive system to accept matter-antimatter destruction while they were orbiting the double star. L5 would first hear of the mutinous plan via a transmission sent as Daedalus left Scylla Charybdis. They'd be a month on their way by the time the message got to Earth. It was pretty transparent, but at least they had been careful that no record of Daedalus' true mission be left on L5. Three thousand people did know the truth, though, and any competent engineer or physical scientist would suspect it. Ab had felt that, although there was a better-than-even chance they would be exposed— Surely the Groundhogs couldn't stay angry for twenty-three years, even if they were unimpressed by the antimatter and other wonders. Besides, Charlie thought, it's not their worry anymore. As it turned out, the crew of Daedalus would have bigger things to worry about. June 2077 The Russians had their May Day celebration. Charlie watched it on TV and winced every time they mentioned the good ship Leonid El Brezhnev. And then things settled back down to normal. Charlie and 3,000 others waited nervously for the surprise message. It came in early June, as expected, scrambled in a data channel. But it didn't say what it was supposed to. This is Abigail Bemis, to Charles Leventhal. 
Charlie, we have real trouble. The ship has been damaged, hit in the stern by a good chunk of something. It punched right through the main drive reflector, destroyed a set of control sensors and one attitude jet. As far as we can tell, the situation is stable. We're maintaining acceleration at just a tiny fraction under 1G. But we can't steer, and we can't shut off the main drive. We didn't have any trouble with ring debris when we were orbiting, since we were inside Roche's limit. Coming in, as you know, we'd managed to take advantage of natural divisions in the rings. We tried the same going back, but it was a slower, more complicated process, since we mass so goddamn much now. We must have picked up a piece from the fringe of one of the outer rings. If we could turn the drive, we might have a chance at fixing it. But the work pods can't keep up with the ship, not at 1G. The radiation down there would fry the operator in seconds anyway. We're working on it. If you have any ideas, let us know. It occurs to me that this puts you in the clear. We were headed to Earth, but got clobbered. We'll send a transmission to that effect on the regular comm channel. This message is strictly burned before reading. End it. It worked perfectly, as far as getting Charlie and L5 off the hook, and the drama of the situation precipitated a level of interest in space travel unheard of since the 1960s. They even had a hero. A volunteer had gone down in a heavily shielded work pod, lowered on a cable, to take a look at the situation. She'd sent back clear pictures of the damage before the cable snapped. Daedalus, A.D. 2081. Earth, A.D. 2101. The following news item was killed from facts and pics because it was too hard to translate into the plain English that makes the paper so popular. Spaceship passes 61 Cygni. Sort of. L5 Stringer. A message received today from the spaceship Daedalus said that it had just passed within 400 astronomical units of 61 Cygni. That's about 10 times as far as the planet Pluto is from the Sun. Actually, the spaceship passed the star some 11 years ago. It's taken all that time for the message to get back to us. We don't know for sure where the spaceship actually is now. If they still haven't repaired the runaway drive, they're about 11 light years past the 61 Cygni system. Their speed when they passed the double star was better than 99% the speed of light. The situation is more complicated if you look at it from the point of view of a passenger on the spaceship. Because of relativity, time seems to pass more slowly as you approach the speed of light, so only about four years passed for them on the 11 light-year journey. L5 coordinator Charles Leventhal points out that the spaceship has enough antimatter fuel to keep accelerating to the edge of the galaxy. The crew then would be only some 20 years older, but it would be 20,000 years before we heard from them. Kill this one. There's more stuff about what the ship looked like to the people of 61 Cygni, and how come we could talk to them all the time even though time was slower there, but it's as stupid as this is. Daedalus, AD 2083. Earth, AD 2144. Charlie Leventhal died at the age of 99. Bitter. Almost a decade earlier, it had been revealed that they'd planned all along for Daedalus to be a starship. Few people had paid much attention to the news. Among those who did, the consensus was that anything that got rid of a thousand scientists at once was a good thing. Look at the mess they'd got us in. Daedalus, 67 light-years out and still accelerating. Daedalus, AD 2085. Earth, AD 3578. After over seven years of shipboard research and development, 
and some 1,500 light years of travel, they managed to shut down the engine. With sophisticated telemetry, the job was done without endangering another life. Every life was precious now. They were no longer simply explorers. Almost half their fuel was gone. They were colonists, with no ticket back. The message of their success would reach Earth in fifteen centuries. Whether there would be an infrared telescope around to detect it, that was a matter of some conjecture. Daedalus, A.D. 2093 Earth, A.D. 5000 While decelerating, they had investigated several systems in their line of flight. They found one with an Earth-type planet around a Sun-type star and aimed for it. The season they began landing colonists, the dominant feature in the planet's night sky was a beautiful blooming cloud of gas that astronomers had named the North American Nebula, which was an irony that didn't occur to any of these colonists from L5. Give or take a few years, it was America's tri-millennial. America itself was a little worse for wear, this three-thousandth anniversary. The seas that lapped its shores were heavy with a crimson crust of anaerobic life. The mighty cities had fallen, and their remains nearly ground away by the never-ceasing sandstorms. No fireworks were planned, for lack of an audience, for lack of planners. Bacteria just don't care. May Day, too, would be ignored. The only humans in the solar system lived in a glass and metal tube. They tended their automatic machinery, and turned their backs on the dead earth, and worshipped the constellation Cygnus, and had forgotten why. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is, certainly is. Joe Haldeman's. Joe, thank you so much. Pete, you're a star. Thank you. Next and finally is First Chapters, Brad Swift, with The Seeds of a New Birth. Hello, this is W. Bradford Swift. I'd like to introduce you to one of my books, Seeds of a New Birth, a techno-thriller science fiction book written under the pen name of Oren Jason Bradford. You know, unlocking the potential of the human mind. Scientific breakthrough? Her really bad idea. Research geneticist Lionel Adams is onto something hot, the key to unlocking the vast reserves of the human mind. Everyone is interested in it. BioVitatech, the research lab he works for, is excited about the possibilities. So are their foreign competitors who are counting on their inside man at BioVita to deliver Adam's secret into their hands. Everyone seems to want a sample of Adam's formula, except his college buddy, Flip McDougall, who makes a surprise visit to Bayer to play a practical joke on his old friend. Unfortunately, it's Flip who ends up with the sample. His world is turned upside down as he struggles and maneuvers his way through the troubles he has gotten himself into, unwittingly as he spreads his gift to others. Seeds of a New Birth, a technological thriller about a future where the highly volatile formula of biogenetic engineering, coupled with corporate and personal greed, threatens the course of human evolution and perhaps mankind's very existence. You can order your Kindle edition or quality paperback at Amazon.com or order it as an ebook at Barnes & Nobles, iTunes, the Sony Reader Store, as well as Kobo. Now on to Chapter 1 of Seeds of a New Birth. 
the accident. 707. This is the room, Flip McDougall thought. If his information was correct, Lionel Adams should be sitting behind this door. Flip glanced down the hall in both directions. It had been so easy up to this point. Denise was right when she told him that breaking into Bida Vida would be a piece of cake. <laughs> Won't Lionel be surprised to see me here? He tried to imagine the look of astonishment would be on the man's face, finally deciding it was easier to see it in person. From the pocket of his trench coat, he removed a black enamored card, an essential item donated by his new friend. Within the thin layers of plastic recited the magnetic code to this as well as other rooms. He ran the card through the small crack in the security lock. The latch silently tumbled open, and a thin ray of light appeared at the edge of the door. Flip pushed it open and walked into the room. Across the room, a lone figure sat on a wooden stool, his back hunched over a binocular microscope. The white lab jacket, draped over angular shoulders, was motionless, its wear intensely concentrated on the scope. Flip's Reeboks fell one in front of the other, quietly, as though the sound had been cut from the scene on a television detective show. He stood behind the scientists, reveling in the triumph of the moment. Flip lowered the attaché case he had been carrying to the floor, careful not to disturb the silence. His gloved hand released the handle and slowly joined his partner. As though on cue, Lionel raised his head away from the microscope. Perhaps a premature warning had finally knifed its way into his consciousness. The hands continued toward the neck, paused, and then moved again, not to the neck, but towards the eyes. The smooth leather creased the eyes, closing off all light. Guess who? Lionel asked, his soft voice shattering the silence like an alarm. Lionel Adams sat in front of the microscope, entranced by the sight of the mutated cells, unconscious to the sharp pain in his lower back, a product of sitting too long in such a position. It's amazing, he thought, how those tiny, flagellated cells could be such an important part of the creation of life. He continued to watch, hoping to find at least one altered in some way. Perhaps it would move a little faster or have a more direct path across the slide, anything that would suggest a change in the cell. Only the twitch on his nose was finally able to break his concentration. Sneezing while looking in a microscope can be devastating on your sight, he thought as he looked up for a moment and sniffed in an attempt to hold back the sneeze. Still concentrating, now on the sneeze, the sudden loss of vision, followed immediately by a strange voice behind him, sent Lionel leaping off the lab stool. While still in the air, he twisted in an attempt to see who was behind him. What the? Who, who the? He gasped as he fought to regain his balance. The intruder stumbled back, laughing hysterically and tripped on something behind him. Oh, God, <laughs> did I ever get you? Oh, what an expression! Lionel finally found his balance, coming to rest against the counter, his hands grasping it for support. Clearing harshly at the intruder, he tried unsuccessfully to see through the man's disguise. "'Don't you recognize me?' the stranger asked as he pulled first one glove, then the other from his hands. 
Then removing a pair of mirrored sunglasses, he placed all three items in the coat pocket. It's your lifelong friend and fraternity brother. Flip? Flip McDougal? Lionel stared unbelievingly at the man, unconvinced his old friend could possibly be in his top secret secure lab. He slowly recognized the truth. Flip? Can it be? Yes, it can be. Flip, I swear. I'll strangle you with my bare hands this time. Still weakened from the laughter, Flip circled away from his friend. Now, how now, Lionel? Control yourself. Remember, you're a respected scientist and community leader, or something like that. The two men circled around the stool, exchanging places. I I swear, Flip, you're outdone yourself this time. If I weren't so glad to see you, your life wouldn't be worth diddly right now. As it is, you still deserve a thorough thrashing. Lionel continued to stalk his old friend, but stopped suddenly as he noticed Flip's hand glide across the lab counter. As though in slow motion, he watched as it collided with the beaker of blue reagent. Watch out! It He began, but he knew it was too late. Don't get it on! But stopped again, realizing the second warning was also too late. As the beaker tipped over, spilling its contents across the counter. Damn! Sorry about that, Lionel. I hope it wasn't something important. Flip looked around frantically for something to wipe up the spilled liquid. Spying a box of Kim wipes, he yanked shovel tissues out of the box. No! Don't do that, Lionel shouted as he grabbed Flip's wrist, inches from the pooled liquid. Let me clean this up. You go down the hall and wash your hands thoroughly. Use plenty of soap. I let you do it here, but I don't keep soap in the lab. No problem, Flip said as he started to wipe his hands on the trench coat, then stopped, a look of concern on his face. Is it acid or something? (laughs) No, it's just best that you get it off your hand as soon as possible, that's all. Now go, I'll clean this up. Lionel reached into his pocket and pulled out his ID badge. Here, take this in case someone stops you. Tell them you've been assigned to this lab. No problem, Lie. You know I can always talk my way out of anything. I need to bleed the old snake anyway. (laughs) I'm beginning to remember, Lionel replied. He watched until the door closed behind his friend, then quickly grasped a small glass pipette and bulb and began carefully sucking the liquid back into the beaker. Flip pushed the door to the men's room open. Less concerned with each passing minute, the fluid remaining on his hands without any adverse effect. With nature calling, with increasing urgency, he walked to the nearest urinal and, without bothering to untie his coat, raised his hem and unzipped his pants. Ah, the pause that refreshes, he muttered as he stepped a little closer to the urinal. As he finished, he noticed a small pubic hair sticking tenaciously to the tip of his penis. Without thinking, he picked at the hair to remove it. As he did so, he felt a stinging at the tip of his penis and realized he'd used the contaminated hand. Shit, he muttered as he quickly shook his penis and returned it to his pants. I'd better wash this stuff off before it starts to eat my hand off. But the damage had already been done. Microscopically, the complex compound from his hand mixed with the fluids of Flip's organ 
Molecule after complex molecule traveled up the urethra. The journey was a slow one, but there was plenty of time. The journey would be complete, and the near magical molecules would be well seated in the testicular tissue of Flip's sexual organ long before there would be call for him to flush the biological tube again. By then, it would be too late. By then, the seeds of a new birth would have formed in Flip's loins. There you go. There'll be a link on to Seeds of a New Birth if you fancy picking up a copy. Brad, thank you so much. So that is Starship Sova's 237. I honestly really do hope you've enjoyed it. Excellent stuff. Don't forget me narrator's workshop, please. <laughs> Don't forget our sister podcast over there, Tales to Terrify, as well. And new and exciting things are about to happen. Stay tuned. Until next week, just like you say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.